We've been in Titus now. I was looking back. 13 weeks. Today is the 14th message from this little letter. The shortest letter in the New Testament. 700, about 900 words or so. This is the shortest of all the letters uh, written by the Apostle Paul uh, to his workers. First Timothy and Second Timothy were longer than this. Titus is the shortest of the pastoral epistles. And yet it holds such great doctrinal truth in it. And we began by asking the simple question, if not programs, then what? If we're not going to give ourselves to organizing around programs, what are we going to do? What are we going to spend ourselves doing? Today, I want to study the last verses here in Titus, and I want to bring this entire study to a close. And I want to begin by looking back over the previous 13 weeks with you. So I've put together this slide so that you might follow here. If you uh, can, and if you want to write it down, these are the eight things that I see in the book of Titus, the letter of Titus. First, if, if not programs, then what? These are all answers to the question. If not programs, what are we going to do? We'll spend our time and resources promoting a common faith. That was from verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. Then in verses 5 through 9, we said we will, we will work I mean, we will ensure that the church has godly leadership. You know, so many churches have ungodly leadership. they got great programs and ungodly leaders. And so the inverse has to be true of us. If we're not going to spend all of our time, energy, and money on developing programs, then we need to be spending our time and our energies and our monies grabbing hold of the common faith and then ensuring we have good leadership, godly leadership. Third thing that we see here. In verses 10 uh, through the end of chapter 1 in verse 16. We will work to shut the mouths of false teachers that might be among us. Remember we said it's not so much the false teachers outside, it's the ones inside that we should be most concerned about. That's not to say we're never to develop an argumentation against false teachers on the outside. But as Jesus said, be careful when you point that one finger and try to point out the speck in the brother's eye, all those other fingers are pointing at the log which protrudes from your eye. So we need to make sure we don't have false teachers and false teaching in our own church before we worry about anybody else. You know, in my classes this week, some of the, some of the guys there, some of the uh, pastors, they spend a lot of time talking about the easy targets. The easy targets. Guys that just got it all wrong, you know, and they're on TV and they're easy to see. They've written some books. And I often will point guys out to you that I'm also concerned with and afraid of, especially the popular ones that's so easy to grab hold of what they're saying, get hooked in and confused. But they just threw these names out there rather easily. One of our professors finally said, what we need to spend more time on is worrying about our false teaching and the false teaching that goes on in our churches. Not so much about the TV evangelists, about us. And if we don't wrap ourselves up in organizational um, um, stuff, then we can spend our time looking at our own doctrine, making sure it's a common doctrine, common with the apostles, common with one another, establishing godly leadership, and then also making sure that any teacher among us matches that common doctrine and is a godly leader. If not, then we've got to shut their mouths. It's a rather strong term, but that's the term... Paul uses to get the point across to Titus. Fourth, in this book we saw, beginning in chapter 2, verses 1, really all the way through verse 10, we see 
that we, we will establish discipleship from older men to younger men and older women to younger women. Okay? So Paul says, okay, you've got a common faith. You've got godly leaders. You've, you've begun to shut the mouths of those who are false teachers among you now. You need to organize yourself like a godly community. See, our community speaks the gospel. It preaches the gospel, either good or bad, right? If there's a lot of immature brothers and sisters running around in our congregation, it's a bad testimony, Paul says, on the gospel and the effect it has practically on our lives. It's easy as an older person, I'm sure, to sit back and say these younger people got it all wrong. But when you say that, it's a charge levied against yourself in Paul's mind. And it's easy as a young person to say, I've got it all figured out. They've got it all wrong. I'm going to fix them. Paul says, you're witnessing against yourself and the power of the gospel at that. And so we, if we don't spend all our energies organizing these little groups of people inside the church, we can spend our time discipling older to younger, both men and women. Fifth, we see that we will grow in submission to our earthly authority. <clears throat> in verses 9 through 10, he he speaks very clearly about the responsibility a slave has to a master. And Dave taught that lesson uh, and did a, did a great job pointing out the historical context which this verse is in and the fact that it does apply to each of us, whether we're workers or we're, we're the managers or the supervisors or the owners. There's direct impact on the gospel as to how we work on a daily basis and how we treat those who work for us. Sixth, we see we will build biblical community. So I just kind of grabbed all of those things and put them together and said, we've got to spend our time and our energy building biblical community. What is it and how do we get there? <clears throat> Seventh, last week, you saw as Dave taught, we will become evangelistic people who are prepared to do good works. Now, the focus of the beginning of chapter 3 and really almost the whole last part of this letter is on evangelism. It's easy to get caught up on the doctrine that I love so much and that I know you love and I know Dave enjoyed preaching it. I was kind of jealous he got to preach the text by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. It's so easy for guys like me and you to get focused on that doctrine. And we should focus on it but this is the point, right? Look back in the beginning. Um, if we look here at <clears throat> verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We're to be showing courtesy to all people, for we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. Paul is calling them to be loving and gentle with those outside the faith because we were once outside the faith. He's talking about evangelism, isn't he? He's talking about our doctrine turning into practice in our lives. It's not enough to just know you were renewed by the Spirit. Now you've got to be one who takes the gospel to others that they might be renewed by the Spirit. Paul's changed the focus a little bit. He's been internally focused the first half of this book. He's really been honed in on chapter 1, chapter 2 about how to organize the church. And he seems to indicate, catch this, that if a church is rightly ordered, it will be evangelistic. Did you get that? If we lack evangelism at Grace Fellowship, it is because we are not rightly ordered. 
And, and I would say, myself and, and, and this church, we've got to really wrestle with that. Evangelism is not a strength here. It's really not. And so what we've got to do is think, where have we missed it? We've, we've, we've missed it somewhere, Paul would say. If these things that you know are not coming out in, in evangelism, something's not right. Something's not right. Okay? So I don't want us to be discouraged, but I want us to be honest with ourselves as we assess ourselves. We've missed it somewhere, and this is the solution. <clears throat> the solution's not to organize, although that may be effective and we may one day do it, organize to just start knocking on some doors and trying to beg some people to get saved so we can say we're doing evangelism. The key to evangelism is a Godward focus. That sounds, that sounds all backwards, I know. But think about it. Daniel says those who know their God then proclaim that God to others. We've missed it in the first two chapters, haven't we? I mean, let's just be honest. We've missed it up there in building community. Maybe it's our doctrine in a place or two. I don't know. Maybe it's godly leadership that we're lacking. But we've missed it somewhere, haven't we, Grace? Let's just be honest. I've already told you, you're a great group of people. I love you. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm just preaching with you here. I've missed it. My life's not as evangelistic as it should be. The point is, your life, as Christ says, should be such a light that others see your good works and they praise God in heaven. And so if that's not happening very often, then we need to examine our lives and repent of what we need to repent of, make correction where we need to make correction. And I can give you some practical things. Some things like, I think the emphasis now on prayer that we've started on Wednesday nights is a beginning. It's not an ending, but it's a beginning. If we go back and study the revivals of the church <clears throat> throughout history, Without exception, they began with prayer. I read to you from Pentecost. Do you know what the disciples were doing, those 120, when the Spirit fell on them? What were they doing? Praying. If we go through and we look at the Reformation, it began because a man and others, not just that one man, but Huss and others who had preceded him, begged God to turn the church from its wickedness back to the truth of the gospel. If we go, just if we walk through the Welsh revivals, teenagers and college students began to pray. The Haystack revivals in this nation, college students gathering in a barn to pray for souls of lost men, begging God to use them in some way that others might be saved. So I think we've started something here. And I want to encourage you very strongly, not out of legalism, but out of a right motivation of the heart. Be a part of the prayer meetings we're having on Wednesday night. Don't disregard them as just some simple-minded little gathering here we're going to get together. Look, my, our guarantee to you is this is not another time of preaching. About five minutes of instruction and about as much prayer as we can stand. That's what we're doing. It's not the old traditional prayer meeting in the Baptist church, right? Where you come in and it's a prayer meeting where you get preached to again. 
And I'm okay with preaching two or three times a week. I'd love to preach three times a week. I don't know if you'd love for me to preach three times a week, but I would love it. I'd preach every day if somebody'd show up. All right? But let's truth in labeling, right? Let's don't call it a prayer meeting and then spend 45 minutes preaching, five minutes praying. That's a preaching meeting. Okay? Prayer meeting. Wednesday nights at this church right now, and as long as God so wills, will be a prayer meeting. Not just for my... Not just for my illnesses or other things. Those things are important. We'll pray over those things. But mainly that our hearts might be stirred for lost men and women. Now that's the emphasis. And that the gospel would go forth. So that's one practical way that we can begin to see evangelism grow, I think. Prayer. Alright? I don't want to spend my whole message time on that, although it would be worthwhile. Let's move forward. Today, we're going to see the eighth thing in this, in this little letter. The eighth thing is we will stand for the truth, love our Christian brothers, and do good. If you want to grab the last part of Titus and just put it in a sentence, this is it. Right? Stand for the truth, love the brothers, and do good, Paul says. Do good. So let's look at it here. Let's read this text. We haven't read it this morning. Let's read it. Read along with me. I'll be reading from the ESV. You read along with me in your translation. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. I want to to read through the whole chapter here. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work. You underline that. That's an emphasis. He's going to emphasize it again at the end. This is a bracketing technique which is often used in the Hebrew and carried over by the apostles. Look, it's in verse 2 that he, or verse 1 he says, Remind them to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, just hold your place right there and look over with me at verse 14, the very end. What does he say? To bracket the whole stuff in between. The the bread of the sandwich. And then there's meat inside, right? The bread at verse 1 is do good works, right? The bread at verse 14 is what? And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. That's a sandwich. Do you see it? It's called inclusio. It's not, I'm not magically making these things up. They, these are literary devices. They really exist. Paul used them all the time. He's including things here. He's summarizing. He's putting it together so we can grab. When you read your Bible, notice these kind of things. When, when an author repeats something over and over again, make note of it. Write it down. Start noticing it more and more. There's a reason why he's doing that. I want you to know how to read your Bible. Good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hatred, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves, there it is again, to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, perverted and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. There it is again. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So we have this chapter here. It's a very short chapter. It's packed with truth. Let's begin in verse 8. Dave looked last week at verses 1 through 7. And then Paul says in verse 8, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. The saying. What saying, Paul? What saying is it? Well, you could just tie it back to verses 1 through 7. But I actually think it's better to tie it back to the entire book. The sayings I've delivered to you in chapters 1 and 2 and the beginning of verse 3, they're all trustworthy and true. All of them. He's saying, insist on them. Not give them an option. Don't tell them if they would like to do these things. Do it. They're not secondary issues. Insist on them. You get the idea of of a shepherd who's leading the flock and he's, he's not letting the flock decide where it wants to go, is he? He's insisting on a direction. And that's what Paul's saying to Titus. Be a good shepherd, Titus. Don't let them choose which way they want to go. They'll get lost. They'll fall into danger. They might fall off a cliff. Don't just sit back and say, well, that's the wrong way, but they'll have to learn the hard way. No. Insist on the right way, Titus. Get out in front of them and love them and hold them and walk so that they might watch you. Insist on it in your teaching, Titus. It's trustworthy. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so he comes back here in verse 8 and says, they need to devote themselves. They need to give themselves fully to good works. And that kind of talk bothers us, doesn't it? Good works. Don't, don't, you, don't you, when I say good works, I can see you shudder. Like, oh no. Aren't you, you're, be honest, you're a little afraid of good works, aren't you? It unnerves you that Paul might say you're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through God's grace alone, for God's glory alone. And you understand salvation through the Scriptures alone. That bothers you that then he would say, but be busy about good works. Right? Because we have set them up as a dichotomy. Two things that oppose one another. You can either be saved by faith or you can do good works. But that's not in Paul's mind anywhere. He says, if you can think of this equation, salvation is here. Before that, right, is faith. Faith comes before salvation. It's incorporated in regeneration. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. But you have faith equals salvation. And then you might draw an arrow 
which says good works. Right? I don't even like to put a plus. Some people put a plus. Salvation plus works. I don't like that. It kind of gives the wrong impression, doesn't it? I rather like to say salvation, which leads then the arrow to good works. If you don't have good works, Paul says, you are unfruitful. You are unprofitable. You're like the fig tree that Christ says, cut it down. It's useless to me. Right? We don't want to be that. And so Paul's always reminding us, you are saved by faith in Christ alone. And you're saved to do good works. Good works don't save, but they logically follow salvation. It's a marriage. It's a hand and a glove. All right? The hand is faith and salvation in Christ alone. The adornment of that salvation, the glove, the thing that the world sees is your good works. Paul's saying put on the glove. Adorn yourself. Dress yourself with good works. Be obedient. Be fruitful. Right? Be fruitful. And I, I could use the fruit tree analogy. Let me do that. That's a more biblical than the hand and glove. Fruit tree analogy. Is the fruit the tree? No. The fruit's not the tree. The fruit adorns the tree. Right? Listen to this, though. How do we get the next generation of trees? From the fruit. So if you don't have any fruit on your tree, there'll be no next generation in your life. There'll be no outlet or reproduction. Nobody wants to die and then never be heard from again. Nobody wants that. God put a desire in each of you and me to have something that matters, that lasts forever, to have a generation after generation approach. God made us that way. And this is Paul's way of saying to us, Good works are fruit which go on the tree that is salvation and that secures the next generation. No fruit, no next generation, we might say. So verse 8, very key. It's a connector between verses 1 through 7 which are highly doctrinal and technical into this practical message that I want to deliver to you this morning. So now we're done with the introduction. We must stand, it says, for the truth by watching our doctrine and disciplining those who believe false doctrine. Verses 9 through 11. The first point here in Paul's practical ending is that we've got to stand for the truth, discipline those who need discipline. That's the point. It is necessary to turn from teaching, but avoid foolish controversies. That uh, word avoid is to turn away from this teaching. To literally walk from it, leave it, don't be near it. Don't tempt yourself with it. Foolish controversies. The word foolish uh, as it's brought forward. And you can't always do this with a word when you do a word study. But this one fits. The word is the same word we get moron from. In other words, don't hang around moronic teaching. Things you know aren't true. You know, it does at times bother me that people can quote so many false teachers on the TV. Because the only way you can quote those guys is what? If you're watching those guys. 
And Paul says, don't get caught up in that moronic stuff. Leave it alone. Especially controversies. Foolish controversies. Now, the word controversies in this text means to investigate something, to look at it closely. But when Paul uses it in every place, as I look through his references using this exact phrase, it's always negative. It's not ever good. And so we need to run away from things which we know are false, and we don't need to, we, we don't need to spend our time with other morons investigating things that aren't true. I thought that might get a rise out of you. Right? Now, how many hours do you have in a day? Limit to number, 24, right? You can't make 25 as much as you might want to. So if you've got, let's just say best case, you've got an hour at some point in your day to listen to teaching, why would you waste your time on false controversies? Get the good stuff. Put yourself on Grace Radio 90.7 and leave it. Break the dial off. Right? And there's some other Christian radio around if you choose, but it's second best. I don't know why you wouldn't go to Grace Radio. It's the source. Or as, or as uh, Bruce says, uh, go and get your iPod and fill it up with great teaching. Right, Bruce? You can drive for hours. Bruce is proof positive. You can drive for hours and never cease to hear God's Word proclaimed right. Wrap your mind and heart around those things, Paul. Say, don't get caught up in this foolishness. And you see, it's even the idea of debating these people. Why even waste your time with them? You're just getting on their level. Leave them alone. Put yourself in the right stream of truth that comes from the Scriptures. Genealogies is another problem. Many people have developed these deep teachings around genealogies, these cryptic messages which God left for us in genealogies. Now, I'll tell you, genealogies are important. There's a lot of importance in the genealogies. I've shared with you before about Genesis 36. That's an entire genealogy. <laughs> That's an entire genealogy of a man that God hated. And yet the whole thing about Esau there in 36 is how much God blessed him. In every way that humans at his day measured wealth, he was wealthy. He had a nation. He had, he had sons. He had cattle and sheep. He had wives. He had possessions. And you get to 36 and you think, why would God put that in there? Why? And I think there's a message for us. A couple, by the way. One is you cannot judge by outward appearance whether God has saved a man or not. That's the reason that gene that's one reason I think the genealogy is there. Secondly, God is such a good and loving God that He even blesses His enemies. He even blesses those He hates. Good reason to have a genealogy, right? That's not what he's talking about here. These people in the New Testament were taking genealogies, which are in the Scriptures and others, I'm sure, and they were creating these whole allegories about them, these whole teachings about them, these secret encrypted codes that God had left in the genealogies. Paul says, don't get caught up in that, Titus, and don't let the people get caught up in foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law. Here he brings up how we dispute over the law. And 
We might be reminded that in Galatians 6.12, Paul said there are those who want to go far in the flesh, but they do it so that they might not be persecuted for the cause of the cross. In other words, don't get caught up with these Judaizers, legalists, who are trying to circumcise people. Isn't it interesting? It's Titus he says this to. What about Titus? Titus was with, uh, was with Paul in all of his ministry or a lot of his ministry travels, but he never let him be persuaded to be circumcised. He says, in a sense, Titus, don't let your people get caught up on that stuff either. These fights about the law. The law of Moses, I think, is the intention here. And so he's saying, stay away from these things. Because, why? Second part of this point is, these arguments are a waste of time. When you're talking to lost men and you're trying to argue with them about the truth, you have no hope. Because 1 Corinthians 2.14 says these things are spiritually discerned. You can argue until the cows come home and they will not believe. So Paul says, tell your people not to get in this argument about foolish controversies, genealogies, Quarrels about the law, and we might include any foolish stuff out there in our day, because it's unprofitable and it's worthless. Arguing with a lost man is just beating against the air. What should we do with the lost man? Present the gospel to them. Present it clearly and concisely. When they turn their back on that, pray for them and look for another opportunity to preach the gospel to them. Don't let them get you off track. One of the chief ways that lost men get us tied in knots is to get us on a side issue. Right? They'll get off on women's rights or Paul's uh, election doctrine or all these things, which are good. I mean, things we ought to be thinking about, right, and studying in our, among ourselves. But with a lost man, there's no need to talk about election. Why? What good does it do him? Not helping him believe. We need to be talking about the gospel with the lost man. We need to keep the conversation there. If we get in any other conversation with them, it will turn into an argument and it will be worthless. It will be unprofitable. So you'll waste your time. We see in verses 10 through 11 the third point under this first main point. Refuse to associate with people who continue in divisiveness. Verses 10 through 11. As for a person who stirs up division, continually divides the flock. Right? After warning him once and twice, don't have anything to do with him. The idea is of those who are factious. Literally, the word means heretic. So when someone's inside the body, okay, don't argue with people outside the body about things that don't really matter. Teach them the gospel. And for a guy who claims Christ and then teaches false doctrine and continues to do it after you've warned him a couple of times, leave him alone. Push him out. Don't have anything else to do with him. He's dangerous. He's divisive. Right? First Corinthians. We see an example of the Corinthian church struggling from this thing. Some are of Cephas. Some of Apollos. Some of Christ. Paul says, did I die for you? Did Apollos die for you? No. Christ died for you. So I'll boast in the cross. Not in me or Peter or Apollos. 
as great as teachers of those men were, they were not going to let themselves be sources of division. So how do you treat one who is in this persistent in this false doctrine? Well, the Scripture is very prescriptive here, right? Give them two warnings. Go to them and argue the truth with them. Show them the argument. Show them where they're false, where their argument is false. Do it in love and gentleness and kindness, praying that they might repent. I think of a man like John MacArthur, who years ago held to an aberrant view on the eternality of the, of the Son. It's just, it, it was just a, just a misunderstanding in his theology. He'd been taught wrong. But some loving brothers came to him, presented how he was in error, and he immediately repented of it and changed it. Once shown the Scriptures, no problems. He divorced himself from that wrong thought, and he went with the truth, the orthodox position. That's an example of what can happen when we lovingly go to somebody and say, hey, you, I love you, but you're missing it right here. If the Spirit of God is in them, they will respond in brokenness and humility and repentance. But if they respond in puffed up pride and arrogance, then Paul says they get one more shot. And if they still respond in arrogance, no more. Remove their seat from the table. Now why do you do that? Out of hatred for them? This is where Christians get such a bad name. Right? You, you people are intolerant. Intolerant of false doctrine, yes. Intolerant of the false teacher, yes. But only because we remove their fellowship so we might share the gospel with them in love again. Discipline is never to just kick them out. It's to remove them so that you might... What other arm of discipline does the church have except to remove from fellowship one who is in the body and teaching false doctrine. What other realm do we have? We can't do anything else, can we? So what God says to do is remove them from the fellowship. Why? Because being removed from the fellowship will be such a public ordeal, so, so burdensome to them, hopefully, that it will cause them to wake up and see they're not in the faith. Or if they are in the faith, that they're in the great sin. And then they will return. They will return. One of my professors this week, Dr. York, is a pastor at Buck Run Baptist Church in Kentucky. He just taught his church, church discipline, probably he's been at the church five years. He taught it about two years ago. Went through a rather lengthy sermon series on church discipline. Because in reality, a church that doesn't exercise church discipline is no church. It's not a church. It's a lot of things, maybe, but it's not a church. He taught his people this idea. Do you know who the first person that had to come before church discipline was? His son. His son. Look, this won't be easy. There'll be people in your own family. There'll be some of the most loved people in the congregation who will hold positions that are untrue and refuse to change the position. And they'll continue to cause stir among the brothers. They'll be divisive. And whether we... They're, they're our best friends, or we hardly know them. The response is the same. They discipline. You know, he disciplined his son in front of everyone. His son had to be removed from the fellowship for a time. 
They continued to love. The church continued to love the son. The son came back in repentance. He's a believer now. He's serving there at Buck Run. Do you know just less than six months ago, they had a couple. They had to put on a church discipline. That couple became angry and said they were being, that, they, that, they, that this pastor was hard and that he was not loving and that he, he picked, he had favorites and all these things. And because they had, had they had been an example of discipline set for the people, you know what the people, the pastor said, Dr. York said nothing. You know what the people said? You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he disciplined his own son in front of this congregation. In other words, if we'll do it rightly, then discipline will be a mode of bringing people back and then finally showing those who have no true connection with the Spirit. It'll divide rightly. Divide. If we do it rightly, they cannot charge us with being pick and choose, playing favorites. Paul's saying, stand for the truth, Titus. Even when it hurts, stand for the truth. Refuse to have anything to do with a man who continues in divisiveness after being warned twice. Because why? Because he's warped and he's sinful. He's perverted. That word warped means perverted. He's perverted and he's killing the unity of the church. Paul has emphasized unity in all of his letters. Philippians chapter 2, unity. Ephesians chapter 4, unity. Unity is his driving theme. We're unified in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And these people are perverting that unity and turning the truth inside out. That idea of perversion is turning the truth inside out. Turning it inside out. Many in our day are doing this, and we must be careful that we're not involved in twisting the truth here at Grace Fellowship. Secondly, and quickly, we must take care of the needs of our fellow servants. I look at verses 12 through 15, and I just, I just want to say to you, this is proof that Paul was a man who loved the brothers. He loved Christians. Look at the verses with me. When I send Artemis, we don't know anything about Artemis. This is the time he's mentioned, and there's no biographical information for us. Or Tychicus, to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer. Again, we don't know anything about Zenus, except this. He's a lawyer. He's got a Roman name, but we have no way to know if he's Roman or Jewish. We just know he's one of Paul's men. Paul loves him. Speeds in the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Now, I told you two of these men we know nothing about and two we know a lot about. Two we know a lot about. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. In my Bible, it's one page over. Paul says... Speaking to Timothy, Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring my, the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. And so Tychicus was a, often being sent by Paul to different congregations. Look at Colossians. If you just turn to Colossians chapter 4. Look at verse 7. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is beloved brother and faithful minister. 
and fellow servant in the Lord. What a beautiful description of the character of this man. He's faithful and he's a servant. And Paul loves him as a brother. Look at Ephesians chapter Verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. So he sent him to Ephesus. As a matter of fact, this man pastored the church at Ephesus for a time. He handled the disagreements there. And possibly that's why Paul sent him to Titus to relieve Titus because he can be trusted to care for the brothers. Paul says, come to me at Nicopolis. Nine cities that we know of in the ancient world were named Nicopolis. The victor, the place of victory. And, but this one probably in Asia Minor, in Greece somewhere. And this is where Paul is and this is where he's going to be for some time. So Titus is to come to him there. Probably Titus left here and went over to Serbia in that area of, of southern Europe after meeting with Paul. We're not quite sure, but that's probably the case. So Paul there in Greece, he's sending Tychicus to him. He's bringing Titus in, and then he's going to send Titus out, and he himself is going to be arrested for the final time as he heads to Rome. In other words, Paul will not be able to take care of these men, these servants, any longer. So he's entrusting their care to the church. One person cannot care for the needs of the brothers. The elders cannot do it on their own. Paul says in verse 15, all the people must be ready to help the servants of God in their times of dire need. All of you must be ready. You must be ready with your time, with your energy, with your finances, with your home, with everything you have at your disposal, you're to be ready to use it for God's people. Urgent needs may come up even today or tomorrow. And all of us must be prepared. So often, aren't aren't we guilty of saying, well, the pastor will take care of that. Or the elders will do that. Or the deacons. That's what we got deacons for. And Paul doesn't say, tell the deacons and elders to be ready to help others and do good works for those who are in dire straits and in need. No, he says, tell the church to be ready to do it. The whole church at Crete was to be ready. Why? So that they might have good works. They might have fruit, which is bearing on their tree. I've saved Apollos, and I want to end with Apollos. Apollos is uh, one of those in the Scriptures that I just really love. Acts 18, 24-28 tells us that he was teaching, and Aquila and Priscilla came to him having heard him teach John's baptism and stopped. They pull him aside and they teach him Christ. And he immediately believes, and immediately begins to teach others. Remember what I said about right doctrine? Apollos had right doctrine. It's evident because it became evangelistic overnight. We don't see Aquila and Priscilla telling him to do anything. He just believes and it motivates him to evangelism immediately. You might say, well, there's not a lot in the Scripture about Apollos. How can you love him so much? Now, let me say this. You may disagree with me on this point, but I think I have some pretty good reasons for holding this. And it's my opinion, right? Okay? I want to say that clearly. It's my opinion. I think it's a good opinion. (laughs) 
Apollos, I believe, wrote for us the letter to the Hebrews. Paul did not write it. If you look at the syntax...